Beloveds, welcome to this special Good Friday episode of The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world, even as we head to Good Friday. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together occasionally for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Dan Dunlap back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor just recently moved to the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee, Erie, and Winraranan peoples. I just moved here. And we'll tell you more about that in a few weeks. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. And this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people. White people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We have a responsibility to create a world without crucifixion. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color about how we're doing. The word is resistance. We're in Holy Week now, moving with Jesus and his community through his last days before he was executed by crucifixion, a punishment of the Roman Empire reserved for those who were considered criminals and enemies of the state. The violent spectacle would have been well known in Jesus' time, as well as the later community looking back on his life, as Rome used crucifixion to deter rebellion from Jews and others not happy to be oppressed under Rome's boot. We are in Holy Week, and the story of Jesus' last days are full of anguish, betrayal, denial, Pilate's cynical manipulation of the situation to extinguish a threat to Rome, and love, and solidarity, and women who refuse to abandon Jesus. The story is full of humanity at its best and its worst. For Good Friday, three of our podcast contributors, John Bergen, Nicola Torbett, and our new contributor, Sarah Jordan, will be reflecting on the crucifixion of Jesus and of brown and black people today. What does crucifixion mean in his day and in ours? What does it mean for those of us who are positioned as white? What should our response, our action, be? Thank you. 
My name is Nicola Torbett. It's Good Friday in Oakland, California, and a group of us have come together in front of the courthouse near downtown for a public worship service called The Crucifixion Continues. We are gathered around a cross that has been covered in photographs of black and brown people killed by the police. Mike Brown and Oscar Grant, Alan Bluford and Alex Nieto, Yvette Henderson and Nate Wilkes and Tamir Rice, the litany of the crucified now familiar to our ears. For the past several years, we've tried to bear witness on Good Friday to the crucifixions that are happening today. This year, we could add to those crucified Jacqueline Call and Felipe Gomez Alonso, as well as the two unnamed Mexican men, all of whom died in Border Patrol custody in the past year. The Trump administration has been quite clear that it is intentionally employing cruelty and neglect in its treatment of the asylum seekers as a deterrent to those who otherwise might follow them to our border. That is the exact purpose of crucifixion, to make an example of some in order to instill terror in many. Today the state employs crucifixion of black and brown people in the form of state-sanctioned killings, police terror, incarceration, immigrant detainment, and deportation often into dangerous circumstances in people's home countries. We've been influenced by the vital work of black theologians like James Cone and Kelly Brown Douglas. Our actions are meant to draw precisely this connection, to invite observers to see Jesus in the faces of these people we have lost to police violence, and then to commit themselves to ending contemporary crucifixions. There's an aspect of this analogy, though, that I've been wrestling with, mostly, I think, because of the shallow theology that surrounds Good Friday in most U.S. churches. There's this idea that Jesus was without sin, right? And that his complete innocence is what makes his crucifixion so powerful. Sometimes people who witness our actions push back on us, suggesting that surely Mike Brown or Alan Bluford was not without sin, and so how dare we compare them with Jesus? Now we're familiar with this form of deflection, right? The perseveration on the allegation that one man was selling cigarettes, another bootleg CDs, that one might have been shoplifting, that another had a gun in the glove compartment, and that somehow these facts justify extrajudicial killing. There's a really important article about this phenomenon that was written by Jackie Wang. It's called Against Innocence, Race, Gender, and the Politics of Safety. And in it, Wang shines a spotlight on our obsession with finding the perfect innocent victim for our justice crusades. We launch campaigns around Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old killed in Cleveland while he was playing with a toy gun, or Ayanna Monet Stanley Jones, the seven-year-old killed in Detroit during a SWAT team raid. But no such campaigns are launched around the police shooting of a man who was driving a stolen car, or the teenager suffocated after being sentenced to time in juvenile hall. This distinction between the innocent victims and the guilty offenders serves to confine racism to individual bad actors 
the individual bad judgment of particular police officers, those proverbial few bad apples. And it masks the systemic association of black and brown bodies with suspicion and guilt, not to mention the way that association sets whiteness up to be innocent. Our obsession with the innocence of victims makes it impossible to talk about the sin of white supremacy. I'll admit that Wang's article has been a challenging read for me. I've read it three times now, and I'm only just beginning to understand it. It's not that the words are too hard, or that the sentence structure is too complex. It's that the ideas she is articulating are such a profound departure from the liberal white worldview into which I have been indoctrinated, that I can just barely see what she's trying to show us. And honestly, I feel like Jesus' crucifixion is like that. I think it's an event that so thoroughly exceeds white liberal constructs that we can barely grasp its meaning. And yet there is something I want to try to articulate here. What does it mean to say Jesus became sin? That's 2 Corinthians 5.21, by the way. If indeed Jesus was innocent, and yet he became, from every appearance, a common criminal, he was treated just like one, captured, given a trial, and sentenced to the harshest possible sentence, to be carried out literally between two criminals, indistinguishable from them to any unsuspecting onlooker. If all of this is the case, then Jesus throws into eternal question our ability to distinguish the innocent from the guilty. His kangaroo court hearing and exaggerated punishment gives the lie to the law, the justice system, and any capacity human beings have to judge others without bias from our own self-interest. Jesus' crucifixion proves these systems forever bankrupt. They are forever tainted by our own sinfulness. The sin is not his, but ours. A lectionary passage from Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's four, verses 4 through 6. Eric Garner, Corinne Gaines, Demoria Hogg, Sandra Bland. It does not matter what any of these crucified ones have done or not done. Whatever their sin, it is not greater than what we have done through our complicity and racial terror. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The mercy and grace of God is our only hope. I know this seems extreme. I know it's disorienting. But it's what I'm seeing in the story this year. And I don't have any answers other than to sit with all of you with deep humility and contrition in the midst of the confusion and disorientation. It's Good Friday, 
in America. Let me tell you a story. My name is John Bergen. I work as a pastor at Germantown Mennonite Church here in Philly. And part of the work I get to do as a pastor is facilitating parts of our youth group, a gathering of 30 young people in middle and high school. It's great. So a couple weeks ago, uh, as preparation for Holy Week, we set up Stations of the Cross all throughout our church building. And if you're unfamiliar, the stations are this long-standing Christian tradition marking the steps Jesus took from the Mount of Olives to Pilate's court, through the streets of Jerusalem, to the cross, and ultimately to the tomb. Many Catholic churches have depictions of the stations on the walls of their worship space, sometimes depicting in brutal detail the torture, rejection, and execution of a frequently white Jesus for many years, I grouped the Stations of the Cross in that same mental category as Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. It's torture porn for people obsessed with feeling bad or making others feel bad in the name of faith. It's violence devoid of context. It's valuing suffering for suffering's sake. So we set ours up a little differently. As the small groups of youth and adult leaders moved through the stations, they were asked to contemplate how we memorialize lynchings in the U.S. They wrote letters of solidarity and support to queer Methodists and wrongfully incarcerated people. They laid on the floor and practiced breathing meditation. They lit candles for loved ones who had died. And in, in planning this, I thought to myself, you know, it's spring. People will be really energetic, cabin fever. They may not want to focus on these stations. I bet we can get through them in an hour, in maybe an hour and a half. Two and a half hours later, we finished with 30 minutes sitting in the darkness of the tomb, the final station. Gathered around a single lit candle, we wept, we waited, we held each other in silence. To be clear, I didn't plan for this part to be 30 minutes long. Sure, it took a while for all the groups staggered in their start times like they do on Good Friday morning in the streets of Jerusalem to make their way through to the end. But we sat there because we needed to. Because in the face of the horror of the many crucifixions of our world, in the feeling of our grief, our confusion, our loss. We needed that silence. So we gathered and we waited. Since Nicola referenced Martin Prechtel in our 100th episode last week, I have been thinking about that mixing of grief and praise and I have been reminded of Francis Weller's work, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. In it, Weller names five gates of grief, five entry points into feeling the hurt of the world. They are, one, everything we love, we will lose. 
to the places in our lives that have not known love. Third, the sorrows of the world, that is what we take in from our ecology. Four, what we expected and did not receive. And finally, our ancestral grief. These five gates of grief connect to each other. Though the first gate is often the most immediate in grieving a move, a loss, or a death, we can find ourselves tapping into these other gates, the experiences of a groaning too deep for words. Grieving is sacred. Weller says that this is why rituals of grief are so important. They enable us to become transparent to the transcendent. Today, as we stand before the cross, the ultimate gate of our grief, we're reminded that through it all our griefs run, or as Occupy put it nearly a decade ago now, all our grievances are connected. In a capitalist Protestant culture that wants us to celebrate Easter without mourning, to buy without thinking, to bomb without mercy, God invites us to grieve. When white nationalism promises our people a false resurrection, a false return, a bad history with a worse future, one where poor and working class white people continue to die from systemic poverty and oppression while elites spin lives and lies and murder people of color, we proclaim a savior crucified. But not just proclaim. In the tomb, no words can do justice. Instead, we must turn to rituals and actions to continue to place our grieving bodies in front of the crosses of our world and mourn publicly and do it again and again, merging our grievances with a vision of the community of God in an escalating campaign that will shake the foundations of white Christian supremacy to its core. We are called in this moment to tell the truth in public to shake off our numbness and reach out to each other through ritual and action. This is a dangerous and holy thing. None of us undertake it lightly. We know from history the risks of action, but we know also the greater risks of a false silence. Here in the tomb, in the catacombs and quiet gathering places, let us gather to be honest in our grief so that we might be honest in our actions our organizing, our campaigning, our resurrection. Reverend Sarah Jordan here. Um, I'm a white, southern, queer, Presbyterian pastor living in Nashville. Uh, I come from the uh, Gulf Coast down in Mobile, Alabama, and I've also spent time in North Carolina and in Chicago, Illinois. I'm excited to be here on this podcast speaking with y'all. I'm This is the kind of work that I love doing and is always the kinds of questions that I'm asking myself when I'm preparing to preach or even just talk with someone about a text um, is where are the words of resistance? 
where is this calling me and challenging me? And where does this, where am I not (laughs) the center of the story? So on this Good Friday, we find ourselves in the last moments of John's passion narrative. We're in chapter 18 and 19. There is a lot going on in these two chapters. But I want to focus on Peter. Just a few chapters ago in John, Peter was really sure that he would lay down his life for Jesus and that he would know the time when it came. He was so certain that he would do the right thing. And of course he would. He loves his friend and teacher and he believes in his message. While we rarely plan to let our friends down, when the time comes in the courtyard, Peter has three opportunities to publicly claim Jesus as his friend. But he feels the danger and chaos rising around him, and he loses his certainty and his confidence. Being Jesus' follower and friend is not something that he wears on his skin or his body. It is not immediately visible to others. Although those in the courtyard are suspicious. But Peter here has the option to fade into the background, to disconnect himself from being connected to Jesus. And he chooses the temporary safety of a lie. Peter chooses not to associate with someone, others, someone that others consider a criminal, a revolutionary, a troublemaker, a boundary crosser, And so often we believe that we will do the right thing when the time comes. There is no doubt in our mind. We look backwards at history and we think, surely we would have resisted Nazi Germany or marched at Selma for voting rights or intervened in Japanese internment. Yet so often in the times we actually live in, Like Peter, we choose to blend into the background, to draw no attention to ourselves, to stay comfortable, to not make waves. When the moment comes, it doesn't actually seem clear. Or maybe it does, and we don't want to admit it. But sometimes it isn't black and white. There's a question of what can I really do in this situation? But we miss our opportunities to speak out, to act, to intervene, to resist. I deeply resonate with Peter in this moment. And I wonder if you do too. Because all of us white folks have been Peter at one point, and probably many more points. We have chosen silence, or the easy answer or pretending that we don't know someone so that we don't lose the comfort of the warm fire, our lives, so we don't lose our social position. Peter is all of us who have the option to fade into the background in moments of confrontation, whether that be because of the color of our skin, our gender, our perceived sexuality, our ability, our accent or language, our lack of religious clothing, we have the option to fade into the background. In other gospel accounts of this story, Peter immediately begins to weep. 
he immediately knows as soon as that rooster crows, he knows the depth and harm of his denial. He realizes that he failed to show up to love Jesus in any meaningful way in that moment in the courtyard. When we fail those we say we love and promise to show up for, to fight alongside, we must stop and recognize the depth of harm we cause. Frances Taylor Gensch says in her commentary on the Gospel of John, love in both the Old and the New Testaments, is not something you feel. Far more, it is something you do. Love seeks the well-being of others and is expressed in concrete efforts on their behalf. Love is something that we do. And love is something that was redefined by Jesus' own act of self-giving. Let me say that one more time. Love seeks the well-being of others and is expressed in concrete efforts on their behalf. Love is something that we do, redefined by Jesus' own act of self-giving. Jesus seeks the well-being of others even when it stirs up trouble, even when it risks his own life. And Good Friday reminds us of the risks of loving in this kind of way, of loving our neighbor as much as we love God, loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, to really risk and show up for our neighbors. Good Friday reminds us what that might lead to. And Jesus calls this active, tangible, concrete action kind of love between his followers and himself, friendship. Now we tend to throw around the word friend pretty easily. We use it for people we don't even know on Facebook and for people who are more like acquaintances or peers. Yet the Greek word for friend, phylos, means that, means that which is loved or important, beloved, Dear, the word is not used for people you just know or even like. It is a word for those who are important to you, loved, beloved, prioritized, centered. Some other words we might use for friend are and for this kind of action, friendship. We might use the words comrade. Companion, confidant, collaborator, accomplice. A friend is someone you take action with, walk along with, trust with your secrets and yourself, stand up for and with, take care of. Peter's failure to show up in this moment, this very important moment, holds up a mirror to us and all the times we have failed to show up. And it also challenges us to do better, to show up, to be accomplices, real friends. Because friendship is not just a one-time thing. And friendship requires ongoing action and commitment. It takes risk and vulnerability. It means having someone else's back, relying on them, bailing them out of jail, linking your arms with them in the streets, 
bringing them food when they are too depressed to get up, making grand gestures of love and care, speaking out when someone misrepresents them or denigrates them. And it might mean risking your life. Peter's story continues in John's Gospel, and I'm grateful for that because it shows us that our failures and our mistakes are not the end, or they don't have to be the end of our story. Peter goes on to learn from his mistakes. He has more opportunities to show up, and he does. He rebuilds trust with his comrades. And no one said it was easy, and it probably was very messy, and he probably messed up again. But he learned, and he showed up, and he loved in concrete ways. And that is the same challenge that we have this week in Holy Week. We're asked to show up, to align ourselves with those who might be called dangerous or criminals, who might be feared by the powers that be and try to push down and push down by the government, by those around us, we have the same opportunity as Peter. And we're called in the same way that Peter is to claim people publicly and to show up and love in concrete, tangible ways. And that is how we show up and take action and continue fighting for liberation alongside those that we are interconnected with, fighting alongside black and brown folks, knowing that all of our freedom is tied up together. That is our call this Holy Week, this Good Friday, is to risk that kind of love, risk the love that Jesus risked, and to show up, and show up publicly, and with, with courage. That is our call this week. This is Reverend Dan back with you for your call to action in response to these reflections on Good Friday. First, I invite you to let your heart and bodies feel whatever response to these reflections have provoked in you. As John says, let us gather to be honest in our grief so that we might be honest in our actions. What we feel may have no words and we may, as Nicholas says, have no answers. Yet it is important that we sit with, stay with, what our hearts and spirits and bodies and minds want to tell us in response to this violent, traumatic Good Friday in Jesus' time and in America. Second, find someone to talk to about what you experienced from this podcast. Listen together again 
and talk about the idea of Jesus being without, with sin or the need for grief or times we have denied Jesus. And then together, take one or more of the next actions. Together, collectively. We are stronger together and do not have to do this work alone. Third, we want to offer you opportunities, as Sarah says, to face our mistakes and the harm we have caused as those complicit in the violence and harm of white supremacy. Here are four actions we suggest to address the harms of white supremacy and white nationalism. All the links to these will be in the transcript, as well as on Twitter and our Surge Faith Facebook group. One, contribute to the work of Surge and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in the fight against anti-Semitism, one of the key forces upholding white supremacy. More resources about anti-Semitism can be found in the transcript and on the Surge website. Two, contribute to the repair and healing of the Highlander Center after the white nationalist attack that burned down their office building. Highlander is historically and continues to be a primary source of movement organizing, leadership building, and healing work. Three, check out the report from Mijente about tech companies like Amazon and their ties to the surveillance, detention, and deportation of immigrants and asylum seekers. You can take action right away against Amazon, but the report also names lots of other companies that you could take action on, such as banks that are funding all of this. Fourth and finally, join the Fellowship of Reconciliation's reparations campaign. Learn more at their website, and we've also included registration links for two upcoming informational webinars. Whatever action you choose, let's do the work together to build a world without crucifixion. Please let us know how it goes and also your reactions to this podcast. To celebrate our 100th episode, which was for Palm Sunday on April 14th, we've created a listener survey. Can you spare a few minutes to share your feedback? Go to bit.ly 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 slash TWIR 100 survey to share your thoughts and stories. You can find that link also in the transcript and on Twitter and our um, Facebook group as well. So go there and share your thoughts and stories. You can also always communicate with us by posting on our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. We value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. And hey, did you know that we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community building? We encourage you to check out Podcast for a Just World, specifically their Lenten series, Sacred Conversations to End Racism. The podcast is produced by our friend Tracy Howe Wispelway, and the Lenten series is co-hosted by Reverend Dr. Velda Love, Minister for Racial Justice for the United Church of Christ. Podcast for a Just World is available on iTunes and SoundCloud slash For a Just World. Thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And stay tuned for our special episode for Easter with three more of our contributors coming later this week. 
You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, we are so grateful to you always, and thank you for doing double duty this week. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice, and in all that you do to build up a new world. A blessed Good Friday to you all. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.